a landmark effort to unionize an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, is putting the spotlight on working conditions in the company's rapidly expanding distribution network and the future of the labor movement in the United States. After a year of unprecedented growth for the company and challenges for the country. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. This is vitally important, a vitally important choice. And there should be no intimidation, no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. Some Amazon workers in Alabama presented the other side of the issue in a live stream hosted by the company for reporters in the area. And I'm not saying that the, the union is negative, but what I am saying is, what are we going to gain with a union vote that we don't already have? The benefits are second to none. If I could talk to the president, if I could talk to a congressman, I asked them, is this more political? Is this really about the employees or is this about big money? But this is not the first time that there's been an effort to unionize part of Amazon's workforce. On this episode of the Day 2 podcast from GeekWire, we go back to that first time, two decades ago, drawing parallels and insights from the past. From GeekWire, I'm Todd Bishop, and this is Day 2, our new podcast about Amazon and the future of everything. Joining us on this episode is veteran journalist Mike Lewis, a new member of the GeekWire news team, but a familiar voice to many GeekWire listeners as a former Cairo radio host and Seattle PI reporter. We're also joined by Marcus Courtney, a union organizer who helped to lead the effort two decades ago that we'll be talking about on the show. And this is day two for you at Literally. GeekWire, right? Yeah, Literally, so the GeekWire. Yeah. So it's really fitting that you're on this podcast. <laughs> Because it That's is actually a pretty funny point. <laughs> it's great to have you here, Mike. Happy to be here, Todd. You have been covering a fascinating story, and we have a guest with us who knows a lot about this story dating back decades. Marcus Courtney is a veteran labor advocate and union organizer who runs his own public affairs agency. Marcus, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Todd. It's, it's great to be here. Well, Marcus, you and I have been talking about these issues going way back to the Microsoft <laughs> Permatemps case, but yep. there are other issues and labor organizing efforts you've been involved in, and they relate specifically to what's going on with Amazon right now, but we're going to get to that in a second. Mike, could you set this up? There is a very pivotal vote happening in Bessemer, Alabama, as we speak, what is going on and, and what are the stakes? So right now in Bessemer, the, what, what's happened is that there has been a push to, to organize the Bessemer Fulfillment Center under a very specific union, the Retail Grocery Workers Union out of New York City. They are, today is the day when they start actually deciding which ballots are legit and which ones are not. And then after they do that, they go through the process of actually counting to find out whether or not this is a successful union push or whether or not it is you know, yet another successful effort by Amazon to thwart any formation of unions within Amazon. This would be it. This would be the first one if this goes through. In fact, I just got off the phone with the Bessemer's, Bessemer, uh, Alabama mayor's office 
Uh, and they, no surprise, decided they didn't want to comment at this particular point uh, on the union vote. But it's the biggest, it's not just the biggest story in Bessemer and not just the biggest story in Alabama. It's one of the biggest stories in the country right now. Everyone is paying attention to this because Amazon, it, this is a, you know, if you believe the labor organizers, this is a big discussion about the nature of work itself, not just about whether or not Amazon has the capacity to absorb unionization uh, within its ranks. I mean, the Amazon people would probably tell you no. And what I didn't know, uh, I'm relatively new to GeekWire and relatively new to covering Amazon, is that Amazon, this isn't the first Amazon's first brush with unionization. There's been a few other recently, but it dates all the way back to when Amazon was a pretty young company early in 2000, which of course is why we have Marcus on <laughs> right now. Marcus, this is a story I think a lot of people aren't familiar with. Can you walk us through like what happened with Amazon? What year was this? And what happened actually early on in Amazon's history? Maybe it's four years old at this particular at this at this juncture about trying to organize Amazon or organize a union within that sort of early version of Amazon. Yeah, so it was back in 1999 and early in 2000 that a group of call center workers at Amazon came to our union, WashTech, which was affiliated with the Communications Workers of America. There was about five to 600 call center workers, and they said that they felt that their working conditions at the company uh, were you know, very, very stressful. They worked a lot of long hours. They were concerns around pay, uh, job security issues, and, and opportunities to move up and advance in the company. And so they thought a good way of trying to address their concerns after first going to management and trying to raise them and not getting any success was the idea that they should try to form a union. And so we, uh, we you know, worked with the workers there and over the next several months launched the union drive uh, inside Amazon for a group of customer service workers trying to seek union organization. And I think that many of the things that you're seeing happening in Bessemer, Alabama, were also very similar to what happened in, in, in that drive in 1999. A very aggressive pushback by the company, uh, organized you know, meetings by management, individual uh, discussions by management to workers. Um, and I think at the time it was very surprising to us because most of the tech companies that we were, you know, had organized at or had discussions at didn't act as aggressively against the union as Amazon did. So it was really quite surprising. But yeah, so it was back in 1999 that really Amazon, you know, workers had started speaking out and raising concerns and saying, we think there needs to be some kind of organized representation for workers inside the company to address their concerns. So tell me a little bit about what was the specific, I know you mentioned this, you know, generally, but what was the specific classification of employees that you were trying to organize at, the, at that juncture? Yeah, this was the group of call center workers, um, call center or customer service agents. You know, you could call up and talk to a customer service agent and to address, you know, the issue around your packages or needing sent back. But at the same time that they were moving from call center work also to an online call center operation. And so that there was more and more work that was getting answered via email versus the call center. And so that was some of the other shift that we're concerned of workers is was the pace is that they moved to more of the online work. There was, you know, speed ups, basically how the expectation of those workers to answer these incoming emails and address customers concerns, especially around the busy holiday period, led to a lot of what they felt was excessive overtime and also, you know, unrealistic goals of which what they, they could answer. So there was, you know, a multiple, and most of these workers, I guess, were considered the professional, were, were professional workers. They, you know, most of them had college degrees and, and were working, and they were really hoping 
that getting started in the call center, they would be able to advance inside a rapidly growing um, e-commerce company like Amazon. And I think one of the big concerns for them was, and you know, the idea of them thinking this was going to be a place to get their foot in the door and they'd move up inside the company over time, but they really didn't feel that there were opportunities for them to be promoted um, as the company grew. So that was another area of frustration for the workers. Can you talk a little bit? This is funny that what, everything you're saying, we could literally transplant uh, to the discussions about Bessemer. The, talk to me a, bit, a little bit about the work rate issue, because that is obviously, there's been more discussion by the organizers in Bessemer about work rate really than even wages, even though the wages are also a consideration. How was Amazon, What was? do you remember what Amazon was asking its people to do at that particular juncture and how they were tracking it? Well, I... And, you know, and I think obviously working in the call center is very different than the physical labor. I just want to say that obviously in a call center worker, you don't have the same level of physical labor, not trying to make a parallel there. But I think that was the idea of, and it's very interesting, is the workers that were organizing back in 1999-2000, they actually called their union day two because it was the day one ethos of, um, (laughs) it was the day one ethos inside the company that, it was the idea of every day as if it was the first day we started Amazon. You have to bring this level of intensity to work, this level of passion to work, and and it was and that it, it needs to be day one. And I think that and so for these call center workers, it was this idea of you constantly needed to do more. You constantly had to raise the game, do push. You had to, you know, and they often felt that the goals that they were being asked to fulfill were unrealistic. And that there wasn't this balance of, you know, of, you know, 10 hour work days or mandatory overtime or not having a lot of time, you know, for, for, you know, you're not having all of a sudden you could have to work extra hours and not be prepared to work extra hours in terms of work life balance issues. And so and those are very, very similar. Yeah, to exactly what's happening at Bessemer is the idea that management is saying that they want all these, they want to control all the expectations. They want to control all the pace of work. And workers are saying, look, we need to have a say and we should have a right to have a voice over the issue of how you're structuring our work and what's a better and an opportunity to influence those decisions. And I think that's what this is really about. It's beyond pay at this point. It's really about an issue of how much power and control should a company have over its workforce in demanding um, its rate of uh, production and speed despite the size of a- Amazon's growth. And I think, you know, back in 99, 2000, Amazon was a much smaller company. You know, today it's a trillion dollar company. It's one of the world's largest employers. Very, very different context. But yet the elements are very similar that Amazon continues to want to have this idea, this level of intensity of work, irrespective of its size or uh, the concerns of its workforce. Well, this is this is really interesting, especially the notion that the day two uh, was the name of the union. Were they being backed by? I mean, in this particular case, it's an it's a union that already exists that decided to come in and organize workers. How did it actually work back then? Was this was this a brand new union from the from the get go, or was it being organized by a larger force behind it? Yeah. Well, we were, you know, our union, WashTech, was a local affiliate of the Communications Workers of America. So we were, you know, we we had backing by a, a major national union. And by the time the workers actually came to us, <laughs> to WashTech, they had pretty much formed a pretty good core. I mean, they had, a, you know, they had already several hundred workers that were 
behind the idea of forming a union by the time they even came and reached out to the union, which is a little bit different, I think, in at the Bessemer, Alabama case, I think was just a small, it a, was a much smaller group. They reached out to the union and the union started right away organizing. And because, you know, back at that time, there were, they did uh, community meetings where the leaders at the Amazon call center would say, hey, we're going to meet to talk about our working conditions, please show up. And there would, they would be, you know, at the very beginning of the of the effort, there was more than, you know, you could get more than 100 to 125 workers showing up, talking about their concerns inside the inside uh, working in Amazon and inside the call center, and why they felt there was a need for some kind of representation and voice, and that they why they wanted to explore organizing a union. And when they were getting together, um, did Amazon at this particular point at this early stage of organizing people, did Amazon executives or managers know uh, about the discussions about the union, or and and when they did find out, what did they do? Well, I think they probably heard rumblings, um, and then they probably saw, you know, thinking that uh, you know the workers were organizing, and they probably thought, well, you know, what's would they really actually? How far would would this actually get legs? I think that's the big question: Is this actually going to grow mm-hmm. to a point? Is this of concern? Is there actually a broad base of support amongst the workers that, you know, the issues they're talking about resonate with actually the idea of a majority of workers that the issue, the issue could actually grow. And so I think at first management wasn't overly concerned because again, nobody had really ever tried to organize a formal organizing union drive inside Amazon ever before. And so the chant, and these were, you know, customer service agents uh, and it was a growing company. So I think the idea of like these workers would be interested in doing that was you know too much of a disconnect but i think once the organizing drive um launched and they saw that in fact we had you know that there were hundreds of workers that were willing to start speaking out and publicly endorsing the idea of union amazon did a very aggressive uh response to it and they launched an internal website uh explaining to managers how to how to dissuade workers from joining the union uh and making sure that they you know communicated regularly to workers, you know, the reasons why they felt the company shouldn't um, be organized by a union. And so it was a very, very aggressive response. And as management began responding to the concerns that the workers raised, and of course, it became, you know, it also became a major story. It became a major national news story that was covered by, you know, international publications and national publications. Management became much, much more aggressive, and it certainly had an impact. It certainly dissuaded it certainly damp, tamped down the enthusiasm of employees to organize the union. I want to jump in here and point out Amazon's basic statement about all of these things, Mike, as you reported in your coverage this week, is that they have a $15 an hour minimum wage, health benefits, retirement benefits, upward mobility, very different from many warehouse jobs. What, Marcus, would you say to that if you were a labor organizer in Bessemer right now? Well, what I would say is that Amazon is that that's 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 true. Amazon does is paying a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. It's Alabama, I don't believe, has a state minimum wage, and they follow the federal minimum wage. And so that those things are obviously that's absolutely true. But I think this is this is an issue beyond wages, and I think this is also why the story is resonating with people around the country because what these workers are actually raising is that we should have, it's not just about wages. It's also about the quality of our life. It's also about the expectations that uh, companies should be able to place on workers in going to work. And should workers have some 
ability to influence what management is asking them to do. And I think that is actually why this story is really resonating. This is beyond the issue of wages. It's actually about these broader concerns that I think are shared by workers across the country, and especially during a pandemic when warehouse workers have concerns around being exposed to the corona and, and COVID virus. And is the company actually taking all the precautions that are necessary in order to keep those workers safe? And I think that's is why, you know, I know management is focused and this is what, you know, they're told to focus on is that, you know, it's about wages and it's about union dues and it's about what you could lose. But I think workers are saying we actually have an opportunity to gain something beyond wages that is very valuable. And I think this is also a, a workforce with black workers leading this union effort. Um, and I think that they obviously, in this context of, of working in Alabama and the, the racial context and the issues of racial justice are being raised, I think there's so many broader issues. And I think that's why it's tapping in. So it's moving beyond wages about what actually should work look like, especially for a company like Amazon that has been tremendously successful. Nobody can argue you know, the idea that Amazon is not going to be able to to be around or is going to go bankrupt because workers want to organize when it is literally one of the world's most successful companies ever in the history of the world. There are clear parallels, as we've been saying, between the company's response in Bessemer and what Marcus just described. I want to get into that right after the break. We'll be back on GeekWire's Day 2 podcast. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm here with Mike Lewis, who has been reporting the story of Amazon's workers in Bessemer, Alabama, seeking to unionize, and also with longtime labor organizer Marcus Courtney. Mike, what are you hearing in what Marcus is describing that resonates with what's happening in Bessemer today in terms of the company's response? I'd say only 100%. Um, <laughs> it, it's... It's really hearing you say these things is is really interesting, and I and I bet that there are people at Amazon still familiar with what you dealt with in 1999. That uh, probably that was probably the beginning of writing the playbook on the pushback, and that would be my guess. But but talk to me. You mentioned something I thought really interesting about this being, and this what I've been trying to say as well that this being much more about work workplace conditions than it is really about wages. Even though the argument has been made that that the other warehouse jobs that are unionized in Alabama do pay more than Amazon does uh, in its package facility. But talk to me a bit about what you noticed then on this. One of the things that gets brought up a lot is the really astounding turnover rate of employees, how often Amazon is cycling through people, which I think makes some sense in areas where they have a, a fulfillment center where there's a giant economy, let's just use this area, and there are other options. But even in Bessemer, the, the, at least if you believe some of the reports, the, the turnover rate is astoundingly high. Did you see that back in 1999? When, would you hear that from employees back then when you were trying to organize here in Washington State? Well, I think, you know, I, the context is, 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 I think there is always high turnover inside Amazon. I think that's, you know, that's been always, you know, the idea that the workers would have to work, you know, long hours um, and have an intensity to work. And often I think that, you know, that you'd either be managed up or managed out, I think is kind of a, was kind of a really a lot of the motto 
of you know some of the some of the concerns of the, of the workers. And so I think yeah, there was always an issue you know of high turnover uh, working inside Amazon. And I I would just say that you know inside the warehouse with the issue of high turnover is that I think these workers want Amazon to be successful. I mean, that's, that's the first thing. Nobody wants to organize the workplace and have an idea and think like, God, we're going to organize this workplace and hope it goes out of business. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, who would want to do that? I mean, they, they kind of know they're living in Bessemer. I think they understand the context of what, you know, what the potential and opportunity for Amazon is. I think the question is, is they want these jobs to be sustainable. They actually want to be able to work at Amazon and have opportunities over the longer haul. But they're it's and it you know and when you hear the stories and and from the workers and the reports out of workers, I think they're really concerned about how sustainable is this actually for Amazon in the long run and for the workforce with this issue when you have high turnover, right? And is there a better way of doing things? I think that's part of it. Is the workers want to say, look, they're actually doing this job ten and twelve hours a day. They might actually have a few ideas that they could, you know, sit down with Amazon and talk about it. Like, here's how we think you could do things that are better to make this company even more successful than it is currently is. But we need to actually have real, real say and real power in order to do that. And they get that power through the union, through the, through the idea of organizing union and under the law to, to be able to actually sit across from management and have real formal discussions where their voice is really going to be listened to as, as equals to help build the company and, and, and find ways to do things differently, which they think is going to be better for the company. This is fascinating, Marcus, because I was going to bring up the automation versus humanity angle in terms of the overall workforce and efficiency, but you're actually bringing it up here in a different way. And that is human ingenuity, hands-on work leading to insights versus data and algorithms leading to approaches. And that's the conflict between the the union approach that you just described and what Amazon would naturally do as part of its DNA. Great point. These workers in Bessemer and they, you know, and and when you hear the workers, they they have pride in working for Amazon. I mean they say, look, we're we're, you know, we did go to work at Amazon and we understood that, you know, in terms of what our pay and benefits were, but I think after they worked there for one or, you know, after they worked there a year during a pandemic, they're saying, look, we think there's actually a better opportunity to do things that we understand that, you know, Amazon, obviously, you know, it's been successful because it's meeting customer demands. We think that need to meet customer demands needs to be balanced by our interests as well. And there's probably insights we can share outside of, of that. Right now, management doesn't need to listen to its workers. They can take those suggestions or, or leave those suggestions. And I think there's an opportunity to do things here better. And I think, you know, I think that's actually why this is, again, this is resonating. This isn't about, this isn't just about wages and benefits. It's about what is the opportunities for workers to say and, and to say that we think management has too much power, too much control over every single aspect of our working life down to the second and we think we should have an ability to influence that, and it's too much. And that's what this is really ultimately about. Workers in that live stream that was hosted by Amazon for reporters in Alabama disputed that notion, saying that they believe they do have the ear of management without a union. Amazon has spent $11 billion on its COVID-19 response, including extensive safety precautions for its warehouse workers. 
But there were questions about the company's approach when it turned out that every employee on the stream just happened to be against the union. My question is, were any pro-union employees contacted to speak in this roundtable and have their voices heard? And why were none selected uh, to give their opinion if they weren't? I'm happy to answer that question. As was stated in my opening remarks, these associates came to us. These are the only associates who we have heard from. We have not heard directly from an associate who is pro-union. And so um, if there are associates who you know of, then um, and have them reach out to us. But in the spirit of making sure that we're holding a fair election, we're not actively reaching out to people. Folks are coming to us and requesting to make sure that their voice is heard because of the media coverage. That, that's just how this came together. We've obviously had a lot of discussion on what the parallels are between what happened back when you were involved uh, in 1999 and now in Bessemer. But what would you say are distinct, uh, distinctly different things? I mean, what what are what are things that are very different now as opposed? I mean, obviously, Amazon's a much, much larger company. But what would you say is very different now as far as labor organizing within Amazon uh, that was not in that was not apparent back in 1999? Well, you know, one is certainly the size of the company. I mean, you know, at that time, Amazon, I mean, 99, 2000, it was it was I think it only had maybe 10,000 employees. It was a much smaller company. The stock price, I mean, a lot of people thought that you could go to work at Amazon and everybody would get stock options. And then within a few years, potentially maybe it had an opportunity to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. The upside of working all those long hours was the potential of an outsized reward for the stock price. And I think that was very, very much an element in 99 and 2000, especially at a company like Amazon, that's clearly not present for these workers today. I think the other important element is the political context um, that you're seeing here. I mean, when we organized in 99 and 2000, I mean, the number of politicians then willing to speak out versus now is dramatically different. I mean, the idea that President Biden had basically a tacit endorsement of the union campaign is is really unprecedented. And that was certainly something that is very, very different. And you just recently had Senator Bernie Sanders and you've had a lot of other political luminaries, you know, kind of speak out, elevating the voices and concerns of workers. That wasn't present, I think, at 2000. And also you have this whole issue of brought around broader economic inequality. You know, Jeff Bezos is um, and Amazon, uh, you know, as that company has been successful, he's gotten more successful as well. And so I think there's this whole question of like this, the wealth that Amazon, uh, that, that the shareholders have versus the average worker. And I think at, the, at our time in, in 2000, Amazon was much smaller. And the idea that, well, yeah, these workers are working hard, but, you know, they're going to get these stock options and there's going to be a chance for a much outsized reward that's going to be available to them that's not available to any other worker in the economy. And I think that, that context is gone today. I think overall, people are very concerned about the overall economic concentration of wealth that the tech industry is starting to represent compared to compared to not only its own workforce, but the workers throughout the rest of the country. Marcus, I've been tracking a new Amazon delivery station in my hometown of Orland, California. Mike and I have had fun talking about this in the past. Something happened last week that I think may relate to this broader discussion. When Amazon initially announced plans for this new delivery hub, it's a small one, but it's in rural America. And so it represents the, the vast expansion that they're going to be making. 
they announced that there would be full and part-time jobs, about 100 to 150 at this facility. Just last week, I checked in with them and they said, actually, we've changed our plans. It's going to be only or predominantly part-time workers, rank and file in the facility, no full-time to start. Hmm. They're going to have variable shifts of a certain number of hours each week, and they need to be flexible to work at different times. So in other words, you could envision different workers working with different workers at the time. You know, they're not in a set routine where they're all together at the time. You can see where I'm headed with this. Is it a stretch to see this as related to unionization efforts elsewhere? And could you see the company changing its broader tactics in a way that naturally leads workers away from potential union efforts elsewhere in the company? This is really a very interesting question because at one time I would say, is the technology sector leading the formation of how Americans are going to work in the future? Or is the technology sector starting to mirror other aspects of work that is in the American economy? And I think what you're talking about pointing out, I think it's actually the technology companies looking at how other workers are employed inside the American economy. And it's more part-time work. It's less full-time work. It's more use of contractors. It's more use of uh, independent contractors and gig workers. And I think they're saying we can actually, we're, we're going to look more like the, that American workforce instead of the workforce where we have been, in some cases, the idea of always trying to start off with full-time work and then have supplemental part-time work, which has always been in the technology industry. It's always been a core group of full-time workers supplanted by the whole group of contract workers, which is what got me into union organizing and being a permatemp at Microsoft and having no benefits. So I think the technology sector has always been like that. So I would say, but even over the last 20 years, the American economy is growing to be much more reliant on part-time work. So I don't think it has anything to do with unionization. I think it has to do with this growth of the American economy of part-time work. And I think, again, it gets back to why this Bessemer discussion is so relevant and is striking such a chord because I think people are really saying, what should the future work be in this country? Is it about making sure that we have good jobs that are sustainable, that at a company like Amazon that is very successful and profitable, that we should have a say over what this future is going to look like, not just the company, or is it going to be an economy where it's you know doing more for less? And then not only that, as the economy grows, we're only going to offer you part-time work. So what do you think then? I mean, let's just say, let's let's go with two, uh, the two obvious scenarios. They win in Bessemer, they get organized, or they lose in Bessemer, and they don't actually, and Amazon wins this sort of at least this fight regarding unions. What happens next? Do you feel like a win means that it will spur more organization within Amazon? Or do you feel like a loss, does a loss cap it off? Or do you think that this is actually a sea change potentially among Amazon employees? Well, I think if I would, I would say is that no matter what happens, the workers have won and the union has won. Because I think what they've shown is, is that a group of workers and this is, you know, and a group of workers that often are not whose voices aren't heard. I mean, black, black workers are, are often the most marginalized, they're underpaid, they've been discriminated against, there's a history of systematic racism in this country. So the idea that this group of 
majority black workers has actually, you know, stood up at a, one of the most powerful corporations in the world and said, look, we matter. Our work matters. We want to be listened to is irrespective of winning the union drive or not is a tremendous victory and shows, I think, the power and the relevancy of what they're trying to do. So I think no matter what happens, the unions, the union and the workers have already won. If they actually win the union drive and the majority of workers support, it will certainly be a tremendous victory and a, and a boost to the idea of how important unions are to the 21st century American economy. It is going to accelerate a conversation, is going to supercharge that conversation, in, I think, tremendously, especially in context of there's issues of labor law reform and, and you know, the political dynamics, I think. I think if they lose, I think it's going to show that, again, it's about does this company have too much power? And I think even if Am- if Amazon, quote, wins, I don't know, <laughs> quote, for them, they would see the union losing as a win for them. Um, but I would say if, if Amazon, if, if the union drive fails, I think, though, it could still be a loss for Amazon in the long run because I think there's going to be more and more questions about what went on and there's going to be many there's going to be lawsuits filed either by the union or by the company on how the campaign was conducted and there's going to be a lot of litigation i think the question is 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 it there's going to be a huge question of fairness that ultimately i think the american public want amazon to treat its workers fairly and i think they want companies to be treating workers fairly and i think that's what's going to be driving the conversation forward Marcus Courtney, it's been great to reconnect with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. It was a great discussion and and uh, look forward to having more. Yeah, thank you. Mike Lewis is a GeekWire reporter who is covering the unionization effort. You can find links to his stories in the show notes on this podcast. Mike, I'm looking forward to doing this more with you. Yeah, this was this was a lot of fun and such an interesting conversation, Marcus. Thank you. And, and the historical perspective, really spot on. Thank you for listening to the new Day 2 podcast from GeekWire. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review. Find more episodes and content at geekwire.com day two. From GeekWire, I'm Todd Bishop. We'll be back soon with a new episode of Day 2.